Good morning. Are you awake already or good morning? All right. So last year I was asked to go to Haiti uh, with the Virginia State Mission Board to be part of a discipleship and leadership program. And this is where we were going to teach other pastors, other leaders about discipleship and just leadership in general. Now, I'd been Haiti before, not to a couple months before that with the state to help the orphanage they run think through some organizational challenges and things like that, but also took some of our church members to see what the orphanage was doing and how we could partner with them. It's right in the middle of Port-au-Prince, so it was a good time. Now, knowing that I was going, and they, they said, well, would you come back and do this? I said, well, of course. One of those things you kind of jump on and get excited about. Then I said, well, what am I going to teach? You see, because their culture is very different than ours. The way they think about time, the way they think about just organizational structure, leadership, I mean, everything is so different. So I jumped at the opportunity, but then I kind of got caught, like, well, what am I going to do? So I looked through all my organizational leadership books, just general leadership books, called some pastors, like, hey, if, if you were going over to do this, what would you do? And after some more conversations about the trip, I realized that I knew the discipleship material very well. So I felt very comfortable doing that, and I said, all right, well, you know what, how about this? We'll just go. We'll just go for it, and then I'll have some conversations, and I'll take my resources, and I'll come up with some stuff as we go along. Felt like it was just a great idea. And so after the first couple of sessions we were teaching and, and learning from each other, I mean, I got really caught off guard because do you know what they struggled with? They struggled with, well, how do we forgive? They struggled with, you know, how do we reconcile in such a broken place? They were trying to figure out how they could trust God. They were trying to figure out how to navigate change with a changing culture. What blew my mind is that they were struggling with the same things people in America struggle with. In fact, they were struggling with the same things that the people of the New Testament were struggling with. And something I should have known far before this, and I guess it's just God used this to teach me, what I learned from that, and just ashamedly, is I realized that God's word is the only thing that transcends culture and time. You know, I had nothing to offer them but Scripture. And do you know Scripture was more than enough? It didn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what century it is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. God's Word is the only thing that will withstand the test of time. Now, don't get me wrong, we had a bank CFO work with them to set up some accounting principles. Like we, Of course we did that. But as far as teaching leadership and what does it look like to follow Jesus and all of that, I mean, it was God's word where we found the answers. But it wasn't just God's word because the reason why we were there, the whole reason we come together from a different culture and different language with all the different barriers, especially food, I'm telling you you had a lot of protein bars while I was there, was God's work. God's word and God's work. And this week when I was reading, I was reminded once again of the ideas of how God's word and God's word are the two things that if we come together on, if anybody comes together on, it will transcend time, culture, or any other barriers or any other challenges we may face. You see, the nation of Israel was dealing with a massive amount of change. 
what used to be was no longer, and now they had to figure out how to go back home and rebuild and start new. If you haven't been here with us for a while, let me just catch up where we're at. Remember, God developed this nation of Israel, told them they were going to be his people. He set them apart for his work. And he says, listen, if you obey me, I will what? Bless you. If you disobey me, the exact opposite of a blessing is going to happen, which is a what? Curse, right. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And remember, the nation grew significantly under King David. It grew even larger and wealthier under King Solomon because of Solomon's sin and the nation's sin. God said, this isn't going to happen. Split the nation. We had the northern tribes get taken in captivity by Assyria, 10 of them. We never hear from them again. The southern tribes we see eventually get overtaken by the Babylonians and they have to go into exile and serve under them. The nation is dismantled. What used to be is no longer. Their temples destroyed. Their homes are destroyed. And we found last week when we were looking at Daniel that the people of God had to figure out what does it look like to be the people of God without the things of God? What does it look like to be bold when you're facing a fire pit? It was pretty easy to be bold, you know, praying for a meal at a restaurant. Like, that's bold now, right? Imagine getting thrown in lines then. Talk about courage. So how do we, as the people of God, be the people of God without the things of God? That's what they were dealing with and struggling with. And as you can imagine, God got their attention. So they're in exile. They're in a foreign land under the Babylonians. But then someone comes and takes them out. Who is it? Who takes out the, the Babylonian Empire? The Persians, right? King Cyrus. This is real history. You know that, right? This isn't just like Bible. This is like actual extra-biblical history. This is the Persians come and take them out. And that's where our story picks up this week. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ezra. If you're like, Brian, I didn't even know that was a book in the Bible. That's okay. It will be back here on the screen so you can follow along with us. It says this. It says Ezra 1, 1 uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And so King Cyrus, what he was known for is after he would conquer our land, all the people who had been conquered by the previous empire would be allowed to go home. Now think about how smart that is. I'm a Jewish person. I'm in captivity. Persia's come and I go, well, I can help or I can let them take out the Babylons and then I get to go home. Which one would you pick? Right? So that's what King Cyrus did. It was a brilliant strategy. So once he took over this land, he told, hey, listen, you Jews, you can go back home. God's told me to build a temple and he lets the Jews return back to do it. Now, the nation was finally going home. And as glorious as this sound, it wasn't, neat, it wasn't easy at all. Over a hundred year span, we see three different waves of Jewish people coming back home. This is just to get your mind right about how the story's working. We see the book of, excuse me, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these are the people, these are the stories that tell us about them going back to revitalize and rebuild their home. 
There are stories. There aren't, because remember, we've read the New Testament, excuse me, Old Testament. We've learned about all the wars and about all the sin and about all the judgment. But this is very different. This is a new chapter in the nation. This is about them navigating change. Their landscape of their country has changed. Their community has changed. Their faith looks very different. They don't even have a temple. What used to be is no longer. They have a new journey, a new story ahead. They face generational differences, which I'll show you. And they got a lot going on in their personal lives, because I bet you can imagine if you were to leave and then come back here and your house was destroyed and ruined, well, you'd start thinking about where am I going to live? Where am I going to stay? What's this going to look like? And so God sent his people back home to revitalize and rebuild the nation and the temple. And while, of course, what we are facing today in our culture is very different, God's people, the church, find themselves in a situation where we must rebuild and revitalize as well. As you know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you this, sanctuaries that used to be filled on Sunday mornings are now almost empty, barely holding on. Gone are the days where church attendance is normal. And you know this, people just don't feel like they have to be at church on Sunday mornings. Gone are the days where people believe they have to be at church on Wednesday nights. According to scholars, 100 or 200 churches are closing down every single week in our country. That is sad, isn't it? You know, studies say that 85%, and this isn't a made-up number, 85% of churches in our country are dying are stagnant, and stagnant means they're not growing at the rate in which their community's growing, which is a very bad sign. 85% of the churches in our country need to be revitalized, which means new life to make them stronger, to breathe some new vigor into the community of people. And you see, churches today still find themselves, even though those statistics are true, Churches still find themselves with the mission for the Lord to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to teach them to follow him. And although society is rapidly changing, luckily for us, we have stories from the scriptures about how the people of God dealt with the change, how they overcame internal and external conflicts, and how they came together to actually accomplish what God has asked them to do. So look at with me, Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. They're going home. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua and his fellow priest and Zerubbabel and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So, King Cyrus let them go back home to rebuild the temple. The first wave led by Zerubbabel was 50,000 people. Now on a side note, you know people named John. You know people named Joseph. We've heard of people being named after biblical characters. You ever heard anybody named Zerubbabel? If you want to be different, name your child Zerubbabel. And please let me know how that works out later in life. Anyways, I've distracted us, but let's keep going. Before they start the task of building the altar, excuse me, the temple. Soon as they come back, they build the altar. What do you do on the altar? 
sacrifices. So like, look at this. As soon as they get home, they focus on following God's word. That's what it means when it says the law of Moses. You see, the people already knew what it looks like when they disobey God's word. They already know what it looks like. They've been cast into exile. Everything's been destroyed. So as soon as they get back, they focus on building an altar so they can carry out the instructions from God. But just because they followed God's word, just because they started the sacrificing again, doesn't mean it was going to be easy. As you know, if you see your home destroyed, your town's destroyed, it would hurt. First thing they do is start laying the foundations of the temple. As you know, if you build a building, first thing is the foundation. But look what happens. It's Ezra 3, verse 12. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the, sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. We will see that the, they had outside opposition, but right now they're dealing with these internal conflicts, these internal issues. Here's what's going on. The older generation had seen the previous temple. The older generation remembered how glorious Solomon's temple was. They saw all the riches that they had. They remembered how awesome it was. They remembered how good things used to be. And now they see the foundation of this other temple, which is smaller, not as an elaborate. And so they start weeping. What's literally happening, he, happening here is the people of God are caught up with what used to be, how things used to be, to where they're loudly weeping. I'll, you'll see why they point this out in a little bit. But then you have another generation. They're not weeping. They're screaming for joy because they've never even been in Jerusalem all they've heard was stories of their grandparents and their parents say of where they used to be, where they used to live, how things used to go. So you got a younger generation excited about what lies ahead, and you got an older generation upset about what used to be. So you have this internal thing going on, going, some are crying, some are excited to the point where nobody knew what was going on. It was just such a loud noise. And so after they laid the foundation, the other people from around them came and said, hey, we see what you're doing. We want to help you. Zerubbabel said, no, we're going to do this on our own. We're called to do this as the people of God. Well, and look what happens. Ezra chapter 4 says, the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So things got hard. You see, they no longer knew their neighbors. They no longer knew their city officials. To everybody else, they were the new people in town. It's been 50 to 70 years. They don't know who they are. And so they're coming in, starting this project, and they said, you can't help. So everybody started saying, all right, well, we got this. This is our town. This is our area, not yours. So they made it extremely difficult to the point that they were afraid for their life. And so check this out. You have this internal conflict among the people going, well, what used to be. And the other ones are saying, no, what's ahead? Then you have outside influences saying, well, you're not even going to do it anyways. We're not going to let it happen. We're going to make you scared. We're not going to let all know. We're stopping it. And so imagine how you would feel. Imagine how they feel. They think, well, I don't want to deal with this. 
I got stuff at home to deal with. I got stuff at work to deal with. Why am I going to sit here and deal with all of this mess when I got so many other things I got to do? Anybody ever felt like that before? I got, why am I going to deal with that? No, I got other things. Chapter 4, verse 24. Thus, the work on the house of the God, excuse me, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they quit. They stopped. Yes, God sent us here. Yes, he's called us here. Yes, he provided the finances, but, but I don't want to, this is, this is too hard. This is too difficult. I mean, I got things in my house. I got to do. I mean, I got a honey to-do list. I got things at work. I'm good. Hey, we're not so different, are we? When things get hard, it's easy to revert back to, well, we'll just let it go. We won't really worry about it. But luckily for us, luckily for them, God sent them a prophet to talk to them. About, this is about 10 years after they quit. So for about six years, they dealt with this conflict. How do we move forward? Then 10 years, they did nothing. Then we have Haggai coming on the scene and just to let you know, he's a little rough. Here's what he says. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So here's the mind, their mindset. They're saying, okay, listen, there's opposition, so it must not be time. I mean, we know God says we're supposed to do it, but if God wanted us to do it, it would be easy peasy, right? If God wants us to move forward, there's not going to be any problems. If we were to be honest, how many of us actually think that? If this is God's will, then it has to be easy. If this is God's will, that means we shouldn't run into conflict. If this is God's will, well, that doesn't mean I have to stand firm and keep fighting. It means I should just give up. And quit. They said, must not be God's will, it's too hard. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet, verse 3. Is it a time? It's not time to do this. He said, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? First, it's like, I don't, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but this is a gut check. Paneled houses means luxurious. It's the extra trim it's the molding, it's the granite. It's not just that they had a house, it's that they didn't have time to do God's stuff, but their stuff was beautiful. The yard was trimmed up, it was lined, the plants were all hedged, the granite was good, it's been polished, the wood floors were amazing. I mean, Lord, I don't have time to deal with your stuff, but I'll pull out the permits, I'll raise the money, I'll do everything I gotta do for my house, but when it comes to you, it's too hard. You see, God saying, I'm not impressed with your excuses. The picture here that he's painting, you're not willing to go through difficulties for me, but yet when it comes to your security and safety, you'll do whatever it has to take. When it comes to making sure you have the panel, which is the luxurious, which is this, the molding, the... Tr You'll go through all sorts of things to make sure it's fancy at home, but for me, it's not worth it. Verse 5, he says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He says, you're not fooling me. You know, we all tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. We all do it. I can talk myself into anything. Anybody else? 
I can, I can rationalize why I should eat an entire pizza. Do it. I'm like, this is just, it's good, it's healthy. It's what I should do. Like, I can do things like that. To which God says, I hear your excuses. Consider your ways. You're not fooling me. You're not tricking me. He continues to tell them, you should read this on your own. He continues to tell them the reason why they don't have enough is because he blows it away. He lists out all sorts of things. He says, it feels like you have a hole in your pocket, doesn't it? Your money's not going far enough. It feels like you never have enough time. It feels like your harvest isn't good enough. You see, you're putting aside all of my stuff to focus on yours. That means you think you're gonna get ahead, but I'm blowing it away. You're fighting against him. Guess who's never gonna win if we're fighting against him? He says, all that extra work you thought was gonna pay off? Nope. He says, you can't put me on the side burner, expect to get ahead. He said, it's not going to work. Then he addresses through the prophet the people who were upset about what used to be. Haggai, verse 2. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So he pulls the people. I've heard your weeping. I've heard your cries. I've heard what you've said. Who here's seen it and realizes this doesn't look anything like the last one? Who thinks this isn't good enough like the last one was? Who, this isn't compared to the last one. This temple is nothing. He says, but now be strong. He's like, I understand, basically. I hear you, I understand, but watch this. He says, now, but be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work. Be strong and work. Continue doing what I've asked you to do. Because he says, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. He's saying, yes, it's challenging. Yes, it doesn't look the same. But keep going. I got you. In fact, the whole idea was whose? Who sent him into exile? Who brought him back from exile? Who told him to build a temple? Who told him to build another temple? They're so caught up with themselves, they're forgetting that this whole idea was his anyways. He's saying, I got this. Verse 9. He says, the glory of this present house will be what? He says, oh, no, oh y'all, don't, y'all don't think it looks so good? He says, I got this. This other one will be greater than the former, than the glory of the former house of the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. Look at what Zechariah tells him, another prophet during the time. He says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of a ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with canes in their hands because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. He says, listen, I don't just have plans for the glory of this temple. He says, I got plans for this city. He says, you're missing it. You're caught up on the wrong things. There are going to be older generations. There are going to be younger generations. I'm going to fill this up with all sorts of people. Just work. Don't quit. There's a place for everyone. And Israel had experienced an incredible amount of change, more than you and I will ever go through, but God was with them right in the midst of it. In fact, God was the one who brought about 
the entire seasons of change. We miss that. Change is usually because God is moving and doing something. And he brought them together in the first place to revitalize and rebuild their community. But it got hard. They gave up. But then two prophets come, and while their messages were extremely challenging, look at what it says. Ezra 6.14. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet, excuse me, and the prophet and Zechariah. They finished the building, excuse me, they finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Here's what I want you to see. Do you remember before when they were before they were sent in exile? Jeremiah would come, they'd be like, Jeremiah, stop. You're wrong. That's not going to happen. Isaiah would come. They'd be like, you're wrong. Elijah, Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. Yo, pff, this is crazy. Remember the prophets were being, they wanted to kill him. They would throw him out. They would ignore him. But now when a prophet's coming, says, no, no, no. Here's what the Lord says. They come together under God's word and for God's work. And they accomplish in four and a half years what they couldn't do in the past 16. All of us, the people of God, when we unite around the word of God, and when we unite around the work of God, God will do incredible things around us. And it doesn't matter what culture we're in. It doesn't matter if it's 2019 or 3019. It doesn't matter what language we speak. None of that matters. We rally around God's word and his work. And for us today with a culture that's changing very rapidly, the times and the pace of change is faster than it's ever been. The thing that will unite us, the thing that will bring all of us together is God's word and God's work. So I have four points for us. Almost done. These are quick. We, you and I, this church, must be led by God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is what I found out when I was in Haiti, and I wish I should have already known this, and I just became even more real. This is alive. This is active. Which means even over there it still speaks and it's crazy because there's nothing else that works like that. It's alive and active. We must be led by it. And that means no matter what happens, no matter what the culture is, no matter what the time is, we could continue moving forward as the people of God. Number two is we must consider our ways. Remember that's what the prophet came and told him. Give careful thoughts to your ways. For us as a church, that means we must be honest. We must honestly think about why we are where we are. We must honestly ask as the people of God, are we neglecting the work of the Lord? Are we rallying around what he has for us to do? And we have to remember, and maybe you've never been taught this, I'm just excited that you're here this morning. We have to remember that God wants our church to do amazing things. Over 2,000 years, our churches have built hospitals, they've built universities. I mean, the church has been an incredible thing. That hasn't changed. 
God still wants us to do amazing things. And for us, that means he wants us to do amazing things in the city of Conway because that's where he's placed us and that's where we're at. He wants us to show grace and mercy and to reach and teach people all about Jesus. We can never forget this whole church thing was whose idea? Whose idea was the church? Jesus. He tells us all about it. He says, and I will build my church. Remember, this isn't just something, a club that someone came up with a couple years later says, hey, I got a great idea. Jesus formed our churches to be his hands and feet into this community and the world beyond. Which means number three, this is the unpopular one. We must be ready for opposition. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. May we never forget that we really have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, a spiritual warfare happening in our churches. That just because challenges come, just because things get a little difficult, doesn't mean we're not doing the work of the Lord. It probably means we are. If we're focused on his work and his word. We have an enemy that really wants to stop us. And sometimes it'll be internal conflicts where people are letting Satan get a hold of them and cause division and destruction. Other times it'll be outside. Outside forces trying to hurt the church. Maybe not in America, but look around the world. People are getting killed for being Christians all the time. You see, we don't rally. This is difficult, but just listen to me for a second. We don't rally around people. We don't cling to them. We don't cling to pastors. We don't cling to the latest trend and lights and trying to be a hip church. We don't cling to traditions. We cling to Jesus Christ. And we rally around his work and his word. Please hear me. I'm not going to change anything at the 11 o'clock service. That's not what I'm saying. Me and Rocky have had that agreement for a long time. I will not change anything at this service despite what people may say or think. But we don't cling to those things. We cling to Jesus. And we can express worship in all sorts of different ways. In Haiti, it looks nothing like this. But it's still okay because of his word and his work. Which means for us, we must dream about what God will do the First Baptist Church. We must dream about the future he has in store for us. Remember when they were getting discouraged, they were looking around about all the hard work and about all the conflict and about what used to be. God says, no, you see this? I got better plans. You see the city? I got better things. And as you know, our church leadership is working through strategic planning. I mean, you have people who are spending a lot of time and prayer and effort for this. I hope you are praying for them. I hope you are praying for the process. But what I hope is what Zechariah said. Remember when Zechariah said the streets of Jerusalem will be filled once again? I hope that the Lord says once again men and women of ripe old age will be sitting in the sanctuary of First Baptist Church. Each of them with canes in their hands because of their age. Maybe wheelchairs, right? We have those today, so that's okay too. The hallways are filled with boys and girls playing in there. That's what the Lord told Israel. And as your pastor, what I ask you to do is I ask you to dream with me. If we, if we come together under the work of Jesus Christ and under the word of God, if we're led by his word, 
If we consider our ways and we're honest with what got us to where we're at and where we're at and where we need to be, might have to re-listen to that. If we're ready for opposition, I mean, read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. There's a reason why Paul tells you there's to take up spiritual armor. What do you have armor for? Who, who puts on armor to go to bed? Well, you don't know my wife or my husband. Like, that's how I feel. Like, okay, we put on armor because of war. Paul says we're at war. And if we dream about the future. And so this week, here's what I ask you. I'd love for you to send me a dream email. I get all sorts of emails. I would actually like a dream email from you all. Where do you think? What do you want to see? What gets you excited about First Baptist Church? Instead of just thinking about, I go to church and all this, what if you were to send me, and I'm asking you, I'm not going to share it with anybody. I may take little snippets and put them together and share with the church. I would love to know, as your pastor, what do you want to see? What are you dreaming of? What can you see God doing through our church? And, well, who still uses their imagination? I think it's about 30 it goes away, doesn't it? Like life hits us, we're like, you know what? I'm asking you to pull it out, find it, and dream. Just imagine, say, you know what? I got a really big God. I got a really powerful God who wants to see the church flourish and grow. Those are facts. Here's what I believe. Here's what I would like to see. Oh, this would excite me. Will you dream with me this week? And will you share them with me? I would love to hear from each and one of you. You've been here a lot longer. You know the place a lot better. So let me know. Because I really believe that God has great plans for this church. I'm excited to see what he'll do. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you've chosen to use us. We thank you so much for your word that will lead, guide, and direct us. We thank you so much for the work that we are able to be your hands and feet into this world. Father, my prayer is that First Baptist Church, I pray that we are known for much more than prom pictures. I pray that we are known for doing the work and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're known for our helping and our service and our love and our grace and our mercy in this city. Father, use us in a mighty way so the future generations will look back and see the hard work that we've done for you. Father, we love and thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.